0: Hello, welcome to The Rounds Table. Thanks for joining us listeners. We have a very exciting show for you this week. I'm joined again by Dr. Laura Walker, the Chief Medical Resident at St. Michael's Hospital. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me again, Karen.
0: So Laura's chosen a really interesting article for us this week. Laura, why don't you tell us about it?
1: So the article I'm going to be discussing today is the effect of conservative versus conventional oxygen therapy on mortality among patients in the intensive care unit. And this article was published in uh, JAMA in October of this year.
0: The so-called oxygen ICU trial, too much of a good thing or not enough? Tell us, Laura, what is the bottom line for this article?
1: So the bottom line of the article is that among critically ill patients with an ICU length of stay of 72 hours or longer, conservative protocol for oxygen therapy versus the conventional or more liberal oxygen therapy resulted in lower ICU mortality.
0: Wow, that sounds like a simple intervention but a pretty powerful effect. Why is this article important overall?
1: So basically, the article is important because there have been numerous studies that have shown that excessive oxygenation, or hyperoxia, can lead to patient harm. The proxy trial, for example, showed that there was an association between a high FiO2 given in the perioperative period and increased long-term mortality. And in addition, the AVOID trial showed that patients admitted with a STEMI and normal oxygen saturations actually did worse if they received supplemental oxygen. So specifically, the patients who received oxygen were actually more likely to have early myocardial injury as well as a larger MI at six months time. And despite several trials that have shown that hyperoxia can be harmful, there haven't really been any RCTs that have validated a more conservative oxygenation approach. And this is ultimately what this study is trying to do.
0: Sounds reasonable. It's trying to take the next step forward in understanding oxygen targets in people who are unwell. So take us through the uh, the methodology, Laura. How did they seek to answer this question?
1: So this was a single-center, open-label, randomized controlled trial, and it was conducted between 2010 and uh, 2012.
0: And who were the patients that they included in this study?
1: So patients were included if they were over the age of 18 and admitted to the ICU with an expected length of stay of 72 hours or longer. The important exclusion criteria were patients who were admitted with either a COPD exacerbation or who were admitted with ARDS with a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio of less than 150, so basically severe ARDS patients.
0: Laura, tell me, why did they exclude those particular subset of patients?
1: So I think that they excluded the COPD exacerbation patients as well as the severe ARDS patients because there are already previously validated oxygenation targets for these patients. So for example, COPD exacerbation patients, their oxygen targets are typically lower than the general population versus ARDS patients um, whose oxygenation targets tend to be a little bit higher than the general population.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we we target generally lower oxygen saturations in people with COPD, especially if they're CO2 retainer and, and there's been evidence around higher oxygen targets in acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I think that's an appropriate exclusion uh, for this trial. So what did they do? What was the intervention to examine the effect of oxygen in these patients?
1: So the participants were randomized to one of two groups. The conventional oxygenation group or the control group received oxygen according to standard ICU practice. This is basically when patients received an FiO2 of at least 40% and their targets were an oxygen saturation of 97 to 100 percent allowing a PaO2 of up to 150 millimeters of mercury In contrast, the conservative group, or the intervention arm, received oxygen therapy to target an oxygen saturation of a lower target, so between 94 and 98%, or a lower PaO2 of between 70 to 100 millimeters of mercury.
0: So how are they going to measure this effect? What was the primary outcome that they were looking at?
1: So the primary outcome of the study was ICU mortality. Secondary outcomes included new-onset cardiovascular, respiratory, liver, or renal Failure. Also for secondary outcomes they included a need for reoperation in surgical patients. They also included for their secondary outcomes any bloodstream respiratory or surgical site infections.
0: All right, that sounds pretty straightforward. I think it's a simple design. What did they find?
1: So overall, there were about 480 people enrolled in the study. The average age of the patient was approximately 65 in both groups. About 60% of patients in either group had respiratory failure, either either as a primary or secondary diagnosis. And approximately 65% of patients in each group were mechanically ventilated at some point during their ICU stay.
0: OK, so they, they, they achieved what they wanted to bring in, you know, a fairly sick a group of individuals. Um, what about the effects of uh, oxygen on their primary outcome?
1: Overall, the control group had higher median PaO2 values than the intervention group. And the control group's median PaO2 was about 102 millimeters of mercury, whereas the interventions group median PaO2 was 87 millimeters of mercury. And this difference was statistically significant.
0: So just for our listeners, that's probably around a 95% uh, SpO2 in the conservative oxygen arm, and about a 98% uh, oxygen saturation in the control or conventional group.
1: Exactly. So what they found was that the patients in the intervention group or the conservative oxygenation group had lower ICU mortality than patients in the control group or the liberal oxygenation group. Specifically, the ICU mortality was about 11% for the intervention group versus 20% in the control group, which was statistically significant. So this translates into an absolute risk reduction of about 9%. And in addition, the overall in-hospital mortality was lower in the intervention group as well. The in-hospital mortality rate in the intervention group was about 24%, and the in-hospital mortality rate of the control group was 34%, leading to an absolute risk reduction of 10%. As for the secondary outcomes, there were no real significant differences in respiratory failure or the acquisition of new infections between the two groups. Apart from the intervention group, they actually had lower rates of bacteremia.
0: Wow, 10% absolute difference between the groups just because of oxygen. That is a remarkable finding. Do you have any comments about what you wanted to, you know, to say anything interesting about their design or the findings here?
1: So I think we need to take those absolute risk reduction rates with a grain of salt because there were actually a number of weaknesses in the trial that call its validity into question. So first of all, the trial was actually stopped early due to difficulties with recruiting eligible patients. And because this trial was stopped early, this could actually have exaggerated their effect size. And secondly, rather than conducting an intent-to-treat analysis, the authors conducted a modified intent-to-treat analysis, which basically means that they excluded randomized patients who ended up leaving the ICU before the 72-hour mark. In essence, they excluded patients after they were randomized, which means that the intervention could potentially influence who remained included and who remained or who was excluded. So the thing I really want to highlight is that, you know, patients can leave the ICU before 72 hours for a variety of reasons. You know, they can be transferred to the ward, they can be transferred to another hospital, or they could have died. So theoretically, if the intervention caused some early deaths in certain participants before the 72 hour mark, these patients would have actually been excluded from the study and excluded from the data analysis.
0: Yeah, and I think it's actually kind of an interesting reason that this trial was ended early. They had recruitment problems, but it actually was conducted at the Modena uh, University Hospital in Italy. And for those of you who remember, they had quite a significant earthquake a few years back, and that actually shut down several beds in the ICU after they repaired it. Um, so they had less patients going through their ICU, and that was even more difficult than they were already having recruiting patients. So uh, unfortunately, it had to be ended early, but uh, thank you, Laura. I think those are really, really important points for listeners to take away about considering the effect size of this finding. So sort of summarize it for us, Laura. What do you think? Strengths and weaknesses overall? Should you take this at face value or um, or with caution?
1: I would be cautious in taking this at face value. I think that there were some significant flaws in the trial design. Most importantly, their modified intent-to-treat analysis. I think the results of their study are very thought-provoking, but I definitely think that further trials should be conducted to address the issue of hyperoxia versus normoxia in more detail.
0: Great. So it leaves us with you know some further questions about, or I guess I should say a continuing need for a high-quality, large, randomized trial to really answer the question. But I think this hopefully moves us in the next step forward to highlight that. We're going to shift gears now and introduce a new segment on the show. Uh, And I'm happy to introduce Saliza Halani, who's a University of Toronto medical student. And she's going to talk to us about virus today.
1: Hey listeners, I'm Emily Hughes, producer of The Round's Table. Today, I'm talking to Shaliza Halani, U of T CC3, about the recent Zika outbreak. Shaliza, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hey, Emily. Thanks for having me on the show today. I'm happy to be joining you to talk to our listeners about the recent research on the Zika virus. Great. It's great to have you here. So, what really made people start talking about Zika? The recent attention surrounding the Zika virus arose when the outbreak began in Brazil in 2015. This was identified when there was an association found with the Zika virus and the Guillain-Barre syndrome and fetal microcephaly. The outbreak spread to involve other countries of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean, and there have been sporadic cases in some of the other parts of the world. So, Shaliza, how do people get infected with Zika? Zika is a mosquito-borne virus that was initially discovered in Uganda in 1947. It is primarily passed between humans via the female Aedes mosquitoes, although recent reports suggest direct human-to-human transmission. This could be via sexual, transplacental, or perinatal mechanisms, as well as blood transfusions. So if there's a lot of ways to get infected, what are some common symptoms? Like, how would someone know if they had Zika? Good question. So the most common manifestations of Zika virus include a macular or papular rash, and that can start on the face and or the trunk but can spread to other parts of the body. Some of the other common symptoms include fever, arthralgias and myalgias, fatigue, non-purulent conjunctivitis or conjunctival hyperemia, headaches, and mild hemorrhagic symptoms such as petechiae and minor mucosal bleeding. A lot of these are very nonspecific symptoms. Some of the severe hemorrhagic complications can occur in patients with concurrent coagulopathies or bleeding disorders. Zika virus has been linked with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which I had mentioned a little bit earlier. And this usually presents as rapidly progressing paralysis with muscle weakness and an in- incapacity to walk with a short plateau phase after. Facial palsy may also occur with this syndrome. The rate of placental transmission of Zika is still being determined as there has been large regional variances as to pregnancy outcomes, but there has been sufficient evidence to show a causal relationship between prenatal Zika virus infection and microcephaly and other severe brain anomalies. This makes it pertinent to test for perinatal transmission in epidemic regions for some of these more severe complications. Can you tell me a little bit more about testing for Zika? While Zika symptoms typically start between 2 to 5 days after the infection, Zika is typically seen in the blood within 10 days post-mosquito bite. The diagnosis of Zika can be confirmed by performing nucleic acid testing to test for viral RNA. This can be done with reverse transcriptase PCR using blood, urine, or saliva specimens. This is a more specific test and can be done within two weeks of symptom onset or possible exposure. A positive reverse transcriptase PCR confirms Zika, but if it's negative, it doesn't necessarily exclude Zika. A more sensitive test would be serological analysis for the presence of IgM antibodies.
1: What about prevention and actual treatment of the disease?
2: Unfortunately, there are no vaccinations or treatment for Zika virus, and symptom control is our current standard of practice. In epidemic areas, it is being recommended by the Center for Disease Control that pregnant women postpone travel to areas with ongoing Zika infection. Testing is offered to asymptomatic pregnant women who have traveled to regions with a Zika outbreak or pregnant patients living in these regions or pregnant patients with two or more Zika-like symptoms. So there have been some recent case reports that have articled patients with uveitis, intraocular inflammation, and decreased visual acuity. And this doesn't necessarily seem to be the only ocular complication to watch out for. Studies have found that microcephalic babies in parts of Brazil with a presumed diagnosis of Zika have presented with abnormalities including retinal atrophy, optic nerve abnormalities, increased cup-to-disc ratio, iris coloboma, hemorrhagic retinopathy, and several other ocular abnormalities. JAMA recommends that ophthalmologic examinations are performed, especially on these microcephalic babies, to prevent further damage or vision loss. That being said, treatments are indicated specifically for the ocular condition. For example, laser photocoagulation for retinopathies or pressure-lowering drops for increased cup to disc ratio, but none of these are treatment for the Zika virus per se. Thanks so much for informing our listeners. Thanks, Emily, for having me on the show.
0: I chose to uh, talk about a study that's entitled the High Press Trial. The title of the publication is The Effect of Hydrocortisone on Development of Shock Among Patients with Severe Sepsis, and this was published October 3rd, 2016 in JAMA, and the first author is Didier K, K-E-H.
1: So what's the bottom line for this article?
0: Well, Laura, in this multi-center, placebo-controlled, and double-blinded randomized control trial of 380 individuals who were admitted to the ICU with severe sepsis, early adjunctive glucocorticoids did not reduce the risk of developing septic shock.
1: So why did you end up choosing this article?
0: The efficacy of hydrocortisone in patients with severe sepsis without shock remains controversial, although there is some evidence of benefit for its use in patients who are admitted with severe sepsis due to community-acquired pneumonia. That being said, the, the use of glucocorticoids is suggested overall by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines for patients with refractory septic shock. And that's supported by two randomized control trials uh, that demonstrated improved survival in patients with critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, or what used to be known as adrenal insufficiency due to critical illness. Um, It also demonstrated shorter time to improvement in shock in one of the other trials. So the biologic plausibility comes from the idea of uh, immunomodulatory effects of glucocorticoids, including, maybe most importantly, the reduced inducible nitric oxide formation, which is thought to play a key role in this pathophysiology of septic shock. So, you know, we have some evidence to support its use in slightly different such situations, and there is biologic plausibility to support it. So I think this was an important trial to address its use in severe sepsis.
1: Okay, very interesting. So, take us through the study, Kieran. What is the design of the study, and where did it take place?
0: Right. So, this was a double blinded, uh, randomized clinical trial that was compared to placebo, conducted uh, between the year of January two thousand and nine to August of two thousand and thirteen, with a follow up uh, period of one hundred and eighty days, and the trial was performed in thirty four intermediate or intensive care units uh, in both university and community hospitals in Germany.
1: Okay. So who were the patients in the study?
0: Well, they were adult patients, and they were identified uh, through daily screening in the uh, intensive care units. And it included uh, 380 patients who were screened from about 9,900 patients who came in with severe sepsis but were not in septic shock. So they had to have evidence of infection. That was either confirmed by pathogenic organism, uh, a focus of infection, you know, you you had a clear uh, respiratory infection, or you were strongly clinically suspected infection based on the testing that we used to help diagnose that. You know, for example, chest X-ray with a pneumonia, uh, or if they had obvious necrotizing fasciitis on the skin or something like that. Furthermore, you had to have a systemic response to infection, so what we used to use and what were called the SIRS criteria, even though that classification has really now been done away with for the diagnosis of sepsis, but they wanted a systemic response.
1: Were there any other key exclusion or inclusion criteria?
0: Yeah, so you could present to the hospital with sepsis, but you could not have organ dysfunction for present for any longer than 48 hours. So that was sort of very important about the timing of, of how sick and when they became uh, sick, these patients. And then they excluded patients if they were in septic shock. And, uh, you know, they defined that by sepsis-induced hypotension despite giving an adequate uh, volume, you know, resuscitation. If that went on for more than four hours, then they called that septic shock. Um, And then obviously, patients couldn't have been on prior glucocorticoid therapy when they were admitted.
1: Okay, so what was the intervention for the trial?
0: Patients were randomly allocated in a one-to-one fashion, either to receive a continuous infusion of 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone over five days, so 200 milligrams a day for five days each following the development of severe sepsis. And then they tapered that dose over uh, the next six days until day 11. The the placebo group received an identical appearing drug, but that did not contain uh, glucocorticoids.
1: Okay, so what was the primary outcome in the trial?
0: So the primary outcome they looked at was the development of septic shock within 14 days, and they assessed that on a daily basis. Their important secondary outcomes were the time until septic shock or death, survival up to 180 days, mortality in the intensive care unit or within the hospital in that admission, the ICU and hospital length of stay, and then the disease severity that was reflected by the use of the SOFA score. They also had some safety outcomes that included the assessment of secondary infections, weaning failure, muscle weakness, GI bleeding, and hyperglycemia. All things that you might expect come as a secondary consequence of the use of glucocorticoids.
1: What were the main findings in the study?
0: Well, this intention to treat population consisted of 353 patients. Septic shock occurred in 36 of the 170 patients who were randomized to the hydrocortisone group. That's 21% rate. And 39 of 170 patients, so 23% rate in the placebo arm. So that's an absolute difference of about almost 2%, but this was not a significant finding. There was no difference between those two. However, uh, an interesting kind of sub-point was that patients were predicted to develop septic shock based on their SOFA score, and you had about a 26% increased risk of developing septic shock for each point you had on your SOFA score.
1: Were there any other interesting findings?
0: So they had no differences that were observed between the hydrocortisone and placebo groups for time until septic shock, mortality in the intensive care unit in the hospital, or mortality at 28 days. Overall, the mortality rates, just to put it in the context, 8% of patients died at four weeks, and 25% of patients at six months. That's a little bit of a lower mortality rate than other major severe sepsis trials, and that might have uh, mitigated the potential beneficial effect of the glucocorticoids overall. Another interesting thing they found was that delirium was uh, significantly lower in the hydrocortisone group, about 11% of patients said delirium, versus placebo had a 25% uh, uh, rate, so about half the rate in the hydrocortisone group. We don't really know why this finding occurred. And lastly, as far as their safety outcomes, they had no significant differences except for the development of hyperglycemia, which is expected, but they actually didn't have any difference in the amount of insulin that was used between the the two groups.
1: So were there any concerns that you had with the study's methodology or their data analysis?
0: Well, the first thing I want to say, actually, this is a very refreshing trial. I always like trials that there's definitely no hope of patenting a drug or using a patented drug. Sometimes we worry about that influencing the the findings of the methodology. Glucocorticoids have been around for a long time. They're a cheap drug. And so they're asking a really important biologic question here. You know, overall, this study is adequately powered. They powered it appropriately to detect a 15% difference in rates of septic shock. And they, you know, they recruited enough patients to answer that question. But the one thing I really wanted to talk to you about was the timing of the efficacy of the delivery of the steroids, we know that steroids take you know, several hours if not a day or so to really start to come on and exerting their effects of suppressing inflammation with their immunomodulatory uh, mechanisms. And patients received these, the, the glucocorticoids within 48 hours after development of severe sepsis. But if you remember what I said, they could have had sepsis prior to all of that for an undetermined amount of time. They were allowed to be sick for a while before they developed severe sepsis. Um, so, at that point, you know, the, the inflammatory cascade could be well set off, and then they're only getting glucocorticoids once they've realized that we've had severe sepsis and trying to prevent progression. But yeah, at that point on. You know, another thing to say is that 61% of patients in this study presented with septic shock or developed septic shock prior to the entry into the study, so they were all excluded from this study. So really what we're looking at is the delivery of glucocorticoids to patients who develop what they've called delayed septic shock in this trial. It's a slightly different patient population than you might see right up front in the emergency department of somebody with severe sepsis. Would these results of the trial be different if somehow you empirically gave glucocorticoids even earlier on to patients who presented? Um, But just something to keep in mind.
1: So what are the main learning points of this article, Kieran?
0: Well, the main thing to take away, I think, is, first of all, who are we applying this study to? So your typical patient in this trial is a 65-year-old man who's admitted emergently through the uh, to, to, to hospital. He comes from the community, or he actually ha- develops a hospital-inquired infection. It doesn't require surgery, and he has severe sepsis. SOFA score mean was 2.5. And most of the time, it's usually due to pneumonia, in fact. of the cases, uh, they were sick enough to require mechanical ventilation. And even though that wasn't a formal inclusion criteria for this trial. And overall, the takeaway message, I think, is really among adults with severe sepsis who are not in septic shock, the use of hydrocortisone compared with placebo doesn't reduce the risk of development of septic shock in that setting. And really, I think that this trial tells you that they don't support the, the findings to use hydrocortisone in these patients.
1: That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that article, Kieran.
0: Great. Well, it was a a pleasure and I, I really enjoyed talking about yours. Let's move to my favorite segment of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we are talking about what we are reading about. Laura, what's catching your eye in the news this week?
1: So there was an article that was published in NPR last week about whether or not the public can trust Wikipedia with information about their health, and this article talks about Dr. James Halman, who is an emergency physician by day and a Wikipedia editor by night. Um, in essence, he's basically devoted a large portion of his career to editing the various health pages of Wikipedia, and it's not a small feat. Um, in 2014, a study actually found that there were 25,000 pages of health-related articles on Wikipedia, and this number has actually grown to 32,000 articles um, in 2016. And this is not insignificant. The Wikipedia health pages worldwide attract almost 5 billion page views per year. And this is not just the general population that is looking at these web pages. A survey in 2012 actually found that 94% of medical students actually use Wikipedia to obtain health-related information. And the worrisome aspect about this Is that not all health pages on Wikipedia are accurate so surveys have found that some disciplines are more accurate than others for example Wikipedia health pages on nephrology were deemed to be generally accurate whereas articles on gastroenterology were found to be lacking in various domains so dr. Hellman has put together a working group of physicians who are dedicated to improving the accuracy of Wikipedia health pages but it doesn't stop there in order to improve Wikipedia's health page validity Wikipedia Editing has actually been incorporated into educational coursework. So, hundreds of students in North America are working as now editors through the Wiki Education Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization, which encourages university faculty to assign students Wikipedia entries as part of their coursework rather than just handing their teacher an essay or an assignment that will never go beyond the scope of their classroom. So, I just thought that this article was really inspiring for our future generation, which may play a huge part in disseminating vital health information.
0: Wow. Well, I will unabashedly admit that as a medical student, I looked up health information on Wikipedia too. My Good Stuff um, segment this week is entitled Choosing Wisely in an Unwise World. And this was actually an essay written by Frank Davidoff and published in the Annals of Internal Medicine on November 8th. Um, and I think this is actually one of the most interesting essays I've read in a long, long time. So I really do encourage you to read it. And the idea is that clinicians often feel more comfortable when we take you know, tangible steps to, to do something for our patients rather than simply watching and waiting, especially when it's under conditions of uncertainty. Um, and I certainly know that I feel that way sometimes. And in addition to that, it actually takes can take considerable time and energy to justify to patients You know, decisions why we shouldn't pursue treatment um, and a lot less time and energy sometimes to just try to throw a pill at at a patient and say, Here, try this and see if it works. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. There's an inconvenient truth that the possibility of no benefit in treatment exists for many patients, despite a trial that might find significant benefit of a treatment. The way this kind of comes out in the wash is that the availability of credible knowledge currently about which individual patients or even which subgroups are and are not likely to benefit from a treatment should be able to improve our ability to choose wisely, right? We should be able to figure out which patients could benefit and couldn't benefit on a more much more individual basis. But really, we can't do that because our clinical trial design in the modern day rarely investigates the variation in treatment effects across participating subgroups. Now the reason that we do that is because there's a lot of statistical noise that's introduced into a trial when you look at a heterogeneous population. And then what we end up doing as a consequence is that we make faulty inferences from these trials that an effective treatment provides equal benefit to everybody who gets it, as long as they're the patient who fits in that trial, right? And so some patients are unnecessarily exposed to ineffective treatments. Um, And that comes along with their associated costs and potential for harm. Uh, And sometimes it it means that they experience delays in receiving safer and more effective treatments. The last thing that you need to understand is that for some reason, we don't really understand why it is. But patients who are at higher risk from a disease uh, process seem to benefit more from a treatment than the patients with the same disease who are at lower risk. And and the statisticians still haven't quite figured out why that is. But here's where the crux of the whole essay comes in. The the solution to this problem is to do clinical trials in studies that are called risk-stratified studies. So just like the oxygen trial we talked about and just like the the, the sepsis trial we talked about, instead of taking all patients with sepsis or, or all patients and applying an oxygen level to them, what about trying to identify patients who are at the highest risk medium risk and lowest risk of your outcome of interest, and then randomizing those groups to the intervention and control arm. And that might be a way to really get at the underlying variation that occurs between patients to find which patients will benefit most uh, from a treatment. Now, there are inherent problems with doing that. Of course, your risk stratifying scores have to be accurate. Clinicians need to know how to use them, all of these things. But the concept I found to be really, really fascinating. And I really encourage you to read that uh, article because it's uh, it's really a mind-expanding one.
1: Yeah, I'll definitely have to take a look. That sounds very interesting.
0: Well, thank you, Laura. It was a great show today. I'm really glad that you, you joined us. And uh, as always, very intelligent and insightful thoughts uh, on both of our articles. Uh, and we hope you come back sometime soon.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me, Kieran. I had a great time.
0: The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.